0: Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Sander van der Linden. He's a professor at the University of Cambridge and a regular advisor to governments and social media companies on fighting misinformation. His research has a, a feed, been featured in New York Times, Rolling Stone, and elsewhere. He's also part of the Mental Immunity Project and Searcy Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative, which aim to advance and apply the science of mental immunity to inoculate minds against misinformation. And his new book available now is called Foolproof, Why Misinformation Infects Our Minds and How to Build Immunity. Welcome, Sander. It's
1: a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: And then so in Sanders' book, Full Proof, he wrote, in an era increasingly filled with half-truths, fake news, and misinformation, I am not here to tell you what to believe. Regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, perhaps you can think of this book as a humble servant in your own search for truth. Andy Norman, a philosopher at Carnegie Mellon University, refers to me as a cognitive immunologist. I quite like this description of my field of research. I study mental defenses of the mind. I want to provide you with a guide to how your brain grapples with the onslaught of facts and and fiction, A a toolbox to help you sniff out attempts to influence your opinion amidst the dark arts of manipulation, a vaccine, if you will, against misinformation, just as antigens produce produce an immune response to in the body psychological antigens can help build resistance to fake news i offer 11 such antigens in this book to help boost me into mental immunity so i'm going to start off with two questions so the first one is um, okay so what i want to ask uh, okay actually i'm going to go backwards so first of all i want to talk about the depict model so the depict model where it's uh, a combination sure. of discrediting emotioning polarization impersonalization, conspiracy and trolling how you fit into how you fit that into what uh, what we would call cognitive immunology and um also i want to talk about so i don't want to kind of bombard you with questions but i definitely do want to get into the difference between uh disinformation yeah. and misinformation because i think people often get those two confused
1: sure sure yeah, um, I'm happy to uh, to actually maybe start with the uh, with the latter because maybe that's uh, an easier one. So for me, disinformation is um, you know misinformation that's produced with some intention uh, to deceive or harm other people. So I think for me, misinformation is anything that's false or misleading, um, and that could have been due to simple human error. Right, journalists make mistakes, scientists make mistakes, and when something is false, that's misinformation. But when we produce misinformation with the intent to deceive or harm other people uh, especially with some psychological motivation uh which we know from research really upsets people so you know people find it acceptable that people make mistakes and that something turns out to be false but people find it far less acceptable if that was done intentionally to dupe other people and so that distinction for me is really what disinformation is all about the involvement of explicit uh intent um and then to answer your other question because uh, it's kind of a nice bridge. When we started looking, you know, doing in in, in sort of our research, when we started looking for, you know, what are the, the markers of intentional disinformation or you know misinformation that's produced with some intent to deceive people, um, you know, we we uncovered these tactics that are used throughout history uh, and by various actors over and over again, and we've inter you know even interviewed. Some people who do this professionally for a living to see what tactics they use um, and that's kind of how we arrived at these uh, these six manipulation techniques i mean there's more i mean i call them the six degrees of manipulation in the book because a lot of disinformation can be broken down into these six tactics um but there's you know there's more of them uh and sometimes it depends on the domain or the you know the specific sort of topic that we're talking about but across the board these are these are pretty prevalent and the way it fits into cognitive immunology is that we started thinking really about this as the building blocks of, if you think of misinformation or disinformation as a, as a virus that can spread from one person to another, then you also want to know, you know, what what are the proteins, you know, what's the makeup, the RNA or the DNA of a given virus? Like what, what are the building blocks that allows itself to, 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 you know, to, to reproduce and, and infect other people? Um, and the involvement of these building blocks turn out to be pretty important. In fact, we have a simulator, uh, an online simulator, that allows people to create their own disinformation using these six building blocks. Uh, And it actually turns out, you know, also when you look at conspiracy theories, for example, that the same ingredients almost go into every single conspiracy theory. Um, So I know you've had other guests on who might disagree Mm -hmm. with me, like Michael Shermer, for example. He takes a different approach, that he wants to investigate every conspiracy anew Uh, and, and look at the evidence for this particular one, because, uh, you know, he has a PhD in history and he sort of takes a slightly different perspective. But, you know, from our perspective, it's more, let's look at all conspiracy theories more broadly. What are the recurring themes here uh, and, and can we use those to help people spot this information? And uh, to give you, you know, kind of a, an example people can relate to, a lot of conspiracy theories involve dead people still being alive on an island somewhere i mm-hmm. don't need to know anything about the world really to understand this this pattern tupac shakur still alive mm-hmm. on an island somewhere avril lavigne actually dead uh mm-hmm. on an island somewhere uh right um princess diana um right uh still alive on an island somewhere osama bin laden still alive on an island somewhere um and so you know it, it, it is all it is always the same trick um and, you know, granted, sometimes they use a slightly different trick, um, and so it's not 100% sort of accurate, but but it's about these tropes and building blocks that led us to formulate, okay, what are the key ingredients that go into producing disinformation, and what if we expose people to these building blocks, uh, essentially, so they can build up their immunity? That was really the question, and what what motivated some of this research.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So since you mentioned Michael Shermer, I actually want to say something that uh, in his defense, but also in the way that you guys would agree. So I actually think you both had the same conceptions of conspiracy theories. So the way he conceives it is, and you mentioned this on, um, I'm not sure if you mentioned this in your book, but you definitely mentioned it on other platforms where there's a set of core principles that inform specific conspiracies. So uh, like, and I also mentioned this when I believed in conspiracies, I had like these core principles, right? So on the one hand, you can't trust the government, you can't trust big institutions. Uh, People are in some ways pawns of those institutions because they're kind of their sheep. They don't really know. They're ignorant, right? They're not the sort of initiated or whatever. Uh, And then on top of that, there's a sort of belief that you can only really trust yourself. Uh, Let's say, you know, the world is sort of uh, this really dark and sort of uh, dark, deep, deep, dark place. Uh, It's kind of full of just poisons, uh, you know, things just lurking around the corner. Yeah. So I think you guys would actually agree more so than you think. So when it comes to specific conspiracies, I don't think he would question every single one of them. I think there are some of them that he would look at and say, okay, this is a little bit more reasonable than some of the ones that are connected to these core beliefs.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It could have been that, that you know, I've been following his, uh, I see some of his tweets sometimes about the UFOs and, you know, how he goes in depth. Uh, uh, he really goes the extra mile to, to debunk all of these conspiracy okay. theories. And I appreciate that. I think that's that's great. Um, so it kind of led me, perhaps it led me to believe that he does kind of investigate all of these conspiracies. But it's good to hear that he also, so, you, so you're saying he also has this sort of notion that, you know, if you look at across conspiracies, there are certain tropes or narratives that, that are repeated throughout history which should lead yeah. us to be rather skeptical a priori of, of some of these plans, yeah.
2: That's actually his book, yeah. So the recent book that he had out last year, uh, it's called Conspiracy. And so he talks about the different foundations of them. And so the, the outline is essentially how people form conspiracies and what are the foundations of them. And like these foundations are these sort of core ways of thinking. So I'll just give a quick example, just not to get into this too much, but when he says something like, yeah. um, he, so yeah, so he's, uh, when he thinks of systemic racism, I don't know if he would say that it's a conspiracy per se, but when he says, you know, he's like, I understand when people think, think, let's say, uh, there are sort of racial motives everywhere, let's say, and then so for him, the underlying understanding as well, because in the past, right, obviously, we've been marginalized, uh, we've been mistreated, you know, abused, whatever. Uh, And then so the thinking is based on that sort of foundation, we develop, you know, these kind of uh, these core kind of concepts of the world and what to expect. And so therefore, the idea is, let's say, a certain group of people will automatically be mistreated by people in power, right? So therefore, now every single thing that kind of happens in that domain, it must be a mistreatment, right? So instead of he would say, probably looking into the facts, we would automatically assume like, oh, yeah, of course, this group is in power. This group is not in power. They're the marginalized group based on my core belief that, you know, marginalized groups are always mistreated. Therefore, I'm going to believe that this happened without particularly looking at the evidence.
0: And what's interesting, just to add to that is uh, there is coherence, right, to that foundation in in a sense. Right. If, for example, um, you would say, OK, there are people, for example, who are racist. Racism has been uh, prevalent in society. Right. Right. a lot of people uh, generally uh, prejudge uh, others. Let's say, let's say you assume that um, it happens to be true as well. But it, you use little sort of rationalizations or little uh, facts, and then you could you could sort of see how somebody, I mean, I wouldn't say makes the jump to uh, this or that conspiracy, but those foundations. It, it is fascinating how there is some sort of a coherence to it, and then that can lead in all sorts of other directions. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly. um, Go ahead. Sorry
2: oh yeah yeah so like yeah one of the main core beliefs is you know like going back to institutions is i can't trust the government right so the way that right. he would frame it is that yeah anything that the government does or anything that you hear about the government doing that's even seemingly nefarious has to be true so it's like for Shermer, i you know i just want to be i really want to be careful because i don't want to speak for him obviously and i mean obviously he can correct whatever if he ever even hears this uh but the point is sure. to say yeah wh- wh- the, the point is to say that a lot of this stuff isn't really sort of thought out or well thought out because a lot of the times when people have core beliefs it like and you would say the same thing i'm sure you would agree uh is that when people have these core beliefs they automatically assume that these like sort of more minor conspiracies are true because they fit this sort of grand scheme or this grand plot that people already believe in so yeah so i would kind of you know sort of push back a little bit on the belief that Shermer debunks all conspiracies or like looks or takes all of them seriously i mean also i think he's a skeptic so that's sort of what he does for a living and yet yeah, the ufo stuff right, i mean he exactly. it altogether but yeah sort of just <laughs> going back it's just going backwards yeah so the depict model so I, I really love it and so can we actually go through them one by one and can you tell us a little bit about how they manifest, and also, by the way, the other thing that's really fascinating is this isn't actually a um. Oh you know, I'm gonna kind of use this no pun intended, foolproof model at uh, predicting or figuring out what are conspiracies. The way you frame it is that these are more like red flags, so they are indicators of bunk or you know dis or misinformation, but they're not exactly you know foolproof kind of resources to say like oh I can spot misinformation here and I could kind of figure out the facts here.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when when somebody figures out that uh that that if you read the book it's not going to be 100% foolproof, I think the the book has done its work uh in terms of helping people identify uh um some of the some of the techniques. No, no, I think you I think you are I think you're I think you're, um, uh, you're right. So the the techniques themselves are 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 indeed their their markers or or flags of um um of potential manipulation because when you do the sort of work that um that we're involved in, which is about prebunking and inoculation, um, you're doing preemptive work, right? So you can never be a hundred percent sure about some future uh, attack or or falsehood, um, even conspiracies. I mean, we know that some conspiracies have really happened, but nobody knows all of the facts a hundred percent of the time, right? We only know, you know, some version of events, and that some, you know, some people did conspire, but you know, we don't know everything. Um, and so we live in a world where we just don't know um, all of the facts all of the time. And so the best we can do really is is look at the patterns that are associated with deception to help people form, uh, you know, in terms of skepticism, uh, a healthy dose of skepticism uh, towards uh, the deployment of of these techniques. And so that's that's right. And for what it's worth, I would agree with Shermer that there are these uh, there's this latent coherence, right, that conspiracy theories. Are often unified by some larger worldview that makes it all seem uh, coherent to someone. Whether it's anti-big corporations or anti-government or some other factor that kind of unifies all of these uh, all of these beliefs, um, uh, which is you know similar in a way that um, again that's not a foolproof way to, to debunk a con- specific conspiracy theory, but a lot of them sort of congregate under the same underlying motivations and so that's just a way to help people identify what's what's a potential conspiracy theory in fact i I talk about conspire in the book which is another acronym um about of the. we can we can get into that more but uh, for the pick yeah um so impersonation is uh is uh the eye sensor impersonation um i like to start with that one because it's easy for people to sort of imagine um impersonation is really about fake you know what started out for us really was this the use of fake experts. So the tobacco industry, for example, used to prop people up in white coats and, you know, run ads that said most doctors smoke Lucky uh, or something like that. Lucky's. And um, the idea re- really was to to have these fake experts be you lend their, you know, lend some credibility to these experts to to try to influence people. Uh, you know, Alex Jones uh, had this uh, character on this show who was the, the MIT doctor. Um, right, uh, who was who was trying to push his multi? I'm not even sure what it was. I think multivitamins or some, you know, some homeopathic sort of sort, sort of remedy for stuff. Um, and and you know, this person had a, a summer certificate in management from the MIT <laughs> school, or whatever. He was not he was not a real doctor. That's the point, right? And so, uh, but but he made him seem like that he was the world's <laughs> best medical doctor uh, who's going to fix all of your cure. So that's that's an example of of the fake expert. Um, But we later found out that it's not just about medical experts. I mean, this is widely deployed. So people impersonate politicians all the time during uh, elections. Uh, People manipulate the accounts of uh, celebrities uh, to try to go viral and and dupe people. Um, In some ways, deep fakes are just a sophisticated form of of visual uh, impersonation. And so there's a lot happening under this impersonation badge uh, in in the, the games that we produce. Impersonation is... One of the badges, and it's also part of the 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 big framework. Um, so that's you know that's what impersonation is about, um, and the way you differentiate that from legitimate content. And so I think you know even though it's not quote unquote foolproof, uh, there are ways to differentiate it from what we might consider more or less nefarious influence. Uh, so I'm not sure are you guys familiar with Bob Cialdini's book uh, Influence and the Psychology of Persuasion? He's uh, a yeah, yeah. I he, know
2: of it. I've never read it
1: yeah, well, so he has these six principles of uh, of influence, and and one of them is about experts, and he says, you know, people are influenced by experts. um and so if you if you want to sell stuff, uh, rely on the testimony of of experts. Um, so it's okay to use a real expert, right to to sell your product uh, if they really endorse it and aren't just you know paid and so on. Um, but a fake expert uh, is is manipulation, right? And so that's where, I think that's where you draw the line between, you know, what's just like normal influence versus what is actually a marker of of manipulation, which is sort of about fake experts. Uh, so I give lots of examples in the book uh, of how this is deployed. Uh, there's the uh, uh, um, you know frontline America's frontline doctors, uh, which sounds like it's a great cause, but it's an anti vax organization, really. Um, right? There's the, um, the the global warming uh, Oregon petition, which actually borrowed the template from the National Academy of Science to make it seem like this was a real petition uh, saying that scientists don't believe in climate change. And the National Academy of Science had to put out a statement saying, no, that wasn't us. And it that's a lot of confusion among the, amongst the public about disagreement about scientists on the issue of climate change. And so this, this technique of, of borrowing somebody else's credibility to confuse people um, is, is really prevalent. It gets even trickier. And this is where you get into these debates when legitimate doctors, for example, during the pandemic, we had legitimate doctors talk about what would be considered rather vaccine hesitant sort of um, sort of rhetoric, right? And then then who's a fake expert? You know they have real credentials, um, and so you get even in a tighter kind of discussion. Well, should should experts only talk about their own expertise, right? If you're a, a cardiologist, should you be talking about vaccines? Um, and so that you know that becomes a bit murkier. Um, but but it's you know one of the markers there is generally. You should trust people based on what their expertise is, right? And we're not always thinking, oh, this is a medical doctor, so he knows, right? But you right. Know, if it doesn't do research in immunology, that's that's something to keep in mind. Um, so if we move on to some of these other markers, on the use of emotions is another popular one. I'm not just talking about emotions in, in in general. I mean, we're all human beings and emotions are are part of life. But if you look at a lot of the research finds is that stuff that causes outrage and fear really. Uh, is more likely to, to go viral, has higher shock value, and is also more likely to be false. Um, so, a lot of disinformation producers, including conspiracy theories, because a lot of them are about fear and manipulation and control, uh, and a lot of the, you know, what we call moral emotional words are used to construct uh, false news stories or at least questionable news stories. A famous example of a moral emotional word uh, is, is something like uh, pedophile. Um, so that's something that's that's both emotional and moral for people. And that's why I see that's why I see some so much stuff about satanic pedophile rings, um, because, you know, that really that moral emotional dimension really gets to people. And so that's why it's a, a common ingredient uh, in a lot of disinformation. Um, but again, it doesn't mean that moral, emotional words aren't used uh, elsewhere. Um, right. But what we're trying to say is that in the context of disinformation, um, you have to be you know mindful of the fact that. Uh, A lot of these scenarios rely on the production of of outrage, but I would even go as far as saying that when these things are used outside of the context of disinformation, uh, some skepticism is probably still warranted if you come from the perspective that news and information should be objective and unbiased and uh, adhere to principles of neutrality and scientific standards and so on. Then it stands to reason that if somebody tries to influence you with a very moral, emotional story, um, that might very well have some truth to it. Perhaps it's a lower epistemic quality than if they had tried to do the same thing with uh, thoughtful reason and evidence, Um, right? And so um, I think even, even at that level, we can still say it's probably not a bad thing for people to be aware of these influence techniques even outside the context of pure disinformation, because there are other ways to relay the same kind of uh, story um, that doesn't try to influence people without their without their knowledge by pulling at the, you know their heartstrings or making it a moral right. You could have made a boring scientific argument, uh, but you know sometimes we choose not to, and that's I think that's okay as long as people are aware of these tactics. I think in any event it will be helpful for people to know about them, um, and so that's you know that's. Um, emotion. Then polarization. I mean, that one's huge, right? So so most disinformation um, not necessarily tries to convince people of falsehoods, but just has the aim of polarizing two groups in society, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, Republicans and Democrats, religious versus non-religious people, it mm-hmm. uh, doesn't matter. They, they look for a wedge issue and then try to play into that and uh, in polarize people. This is part of the playbook of Russian disinformation campaigns. Um, but also of domestic disinformation sometimes when people deliberately produce headlines that are polarizing. Uh, and again, sometimes the mainstream media does this. I mean, the mainstream media isn't, you know, isn't... Uh, I think the, the key thing to differentiate here is that it's... If a mainstream outlet uses the polarization technique, it's totally legitimate for people to be more skeptical of of a headline that is very polarizing. I mean, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't trust the BBC or the New York Times. Uh, right, because as a whole, they're pretty credible uh, and they're well-rated in terms of factuality. But that doesn't mean that every single headline they they produce is going to be non-manipulative. I mean, that's not what it means. I mean, a lot of mainstream outlets sometimes put out manipulative headlines, and because they're they have a lot of credibility, that could be even worse because more people share and buy into it than some crank website that nobody's heard of. Right, um, and so mm-hmm. that's I think important to keep in mind for people that yes, sometimes you see this. That people, uh, you know, will recognize the the wider application of these techniques. But I think that that's important because, um, you know, our definition is irrespective of source or intent. Um, that you know we don't we don't limit and say only these people produce fake news or oh, these techniques only occur for for you know info wars or these type of outlets. Mm-hmm. We say look, anyone anywhere can use these techniques. So we're not going to say anything about sources or intentions. We're just going to help you. Recognize these techniques, and the thing you said about what was interesting about not knowing facts about the world, or you know, not being foolproof because you don't have access to the facts. The point of this framework is that a lot of the stuff isn't isn't fact checkable in some in some ways. I just made up that word, but it sounded good in my head. Um, <laughs> and so and 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 so you know, a lot of the content you can't fact check, and most content isn't actually fact checked, uh, and some statements. Uh, um, are just hard to deal with that are very prevalent on social media. So, for example, um, if I say all Republicans are evil, or most Republicans are, uh, you know, have lower intelligence than Democrats, or most Democrats are social justice warriors, or uh, statements like this occur all the time, and you can't really fact check this stuff. Um, I mean, are most Republicans evil? How you how how would you even research that? Or around right? the, the point is. Yeah, you, ha- you don't have to know anything about the world, really, or not much, to know that that is a polarizing statement. Um, and we know that it's polarizing because we can measure the polarity of of words that are used in a particular sentence, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Depending, and so um, you can see just from the construction of the sentence, really, that it's that is polarizing. And nobody is is going to fact check this type of stuff, right? Because it's you know it, it's it's mostly just the toxic type of type of content. Um, and so that is actually much more prevalent than you know flat earth type of conspiracy theories. And that's why we think it's important that people are aware of these markers, right? That people can decide for themselves and say, "Look, you know this is this is a polarizing headline, so I'm going to assign it lower credibility." And I should mention this is quite important that you know we don't in our framework, we don't tell people what and you mentioned this from the quote from our book, that's why I think it's irrelevant. We don't tell people uh, what to believe in terms of true or false. And that's also precisely because of the reason. But this framework doesn't guide you in terms of, you know, is this content 100% true or 100% false? That's not what it does, right? And so mm-hmm. we just want to help people calibrate their accuracy judgments and say, look, there's some of these techniques are present here, so I'm going to find this probably a little less accurate than if these techniques hadn't been present. Um, and I think that's a much more nuanced way to think about claims in the world that we, you know, we probably have to accept that most outlets have some sort of bias. Uh, and are not going to be perfectly accurate, and so we live on a continuum of manipulation. And the best we can do is calibrate, um, you know, our judgments in terms of how reliable we find something based on the degrees of manipulation that are that are present. Uh, um, and so, you know, it kind of assumes that we live with in a world where manipulation takes place, and um, and that sometimes we we can't know what's true or what's not, and that we calibrate our judgments based on these uh, techniques. Uh, just to finish the list, so we can. I'm sure you guys have, uh, have other questions, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, the, the D stands for deflection or discrediting, which is all about uh, discrediting uh, bad actors, um, um, or in this case, you know, at least bad actors, let me put it this way, bad actors often discredit uh, using denial and deflection tactics. So they will deflect away from the evidence or deny scientific evidence uh, to try to discredit uh, what we would generally consider to be legitimate institutions, um, and again, you know, you could say, "Oh, but but don't fact checkers discredit misinformation." Um, but again, there's very there are very big differences here in how this is used. So in the in the disinformation space, people discredit using uh, ad hominem attacks, using deflection and denial of scientific evidence. Um, fact checkers discredit by using. St- Sorry.
2: Yeah, fostering doubt too.
1: Fostering doubt. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. That's, that's a really important one. By fostering doubt, that's a huge part of the now, is just casting doubt on the mainstream uh, and scientific narrative. Uh, absolutely. Um, whereas fact checkers, they use neutral scientific objective language. If you read a fact check, it's very, very professionally written. Uh, it tends to be nonpartisan right? And they try to to be as objective as possible. They don't use any of these techniques to discredit. Um, And so there are are big differences in how disinformation actors use these techniques and how others might use these techniques, right? So in the context of disinformation, this is what you're looking for, the sort of casting doubt, uh, denial, deflection, and that's how how content is discredited. C stands for conspiracy. Now, we already talked about that. I think for me, the, the important element is that The best conspiracies contain a grain of of truth. And I think you mentioned something like that, that, you know, there's often some some vague, you know, grain of truth in there. And then they use that to to, to try to cast uh, doubt on the mainstream narrative and uh, uh, and use uncertainty and and information vacuums uh, to try to concoct plausible sounding explanations um, using particular ingredients. I, I later break down the conspiracy technique into sub elements. Um, that uh, my colleagues and I have, uh, have, uh, have further developed. Um, so things like, you know, most conspiracy theories have uh, assumed nefarious intentions, right? Mm-hmm. It's never the case, Leon, uh, that, you know, um, people are plotting in secret to throw you a surprise birthday party, right? We mm-hmm. don't, you know, maybe you hate birthday parties, and it would make for a good conspiracy, right? But, but uh, uh, th- that's usually not the case. It's always some nefarious actor. Um, it's a predictable plot, right? There's some some guy, or mostly men, sometimes females, plotting in in secret to, to you know concoct some some evil plan. Um, so there's this nefarious intention. Um, there's incoherence. Often, the even though there's this sort of global psychological coherence, that the theories themselves are usually completely incoherent. Like either you know, o, o, you know, Osama bin Laden uh, was already dead when uh, you know when they when they found him in the in the compound, or maybe he's still alive somewhere. And you know, people will often uh, endorse sometimes mutually exclusive conspiracy theories and sometimes just contradictory accounts because of this global coherence. So it doesn't matter what what it actually is as long as it's anti-government i'm on board right um and that's when you look at the specifics it's often totally incoherent a persecuted victim right there's always somebody in power and then some victim and um, that's that's the how the stories are constructed um and um, um, uh, reinterpreting randomness 5g is a wonderful example of that right oh there's more coronavirus deaths where there's more cell towers so what could explain that? Right? Oh, maybe a third factor: population density. Right, where there's more people, there's more phone mass and more deaths. But no, we can twist that around and say, well, actually, it's the phone mass that are causing the the deaths. And and the sort of confusing correlation with causality is uh, is really um, a hot sort of ingredient for conspiracy theories. They love that, and so they they tend to use correlation and turn it into causation because most people confuse correlation causation, which makes conspiracy sound very um, attractive. So anyway, so what we do in these experiments is, um, we take these ingredients, and then have people concoct their own conspiracy. And we find that with those basic ingredients, you can create any plausible sounding conspiracy theory. Uh, And, you know, we're obviously not behind this one, but the birds aren't real one, I think, is a great example of, uh, of that. I mean, are you guys familiar with the birds aren't real? oh uh, yeah no, we talked about it on the oh, podcast oh, yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah. where the birds are actually not really birds they're they're robots surveilling us yeah, yeah.
1: the birds are not real I actually yeah. don't remember this okay man. yeah so the birds it's satire but it's meant to illustrate that you can create a conspiracy using using these predictable ingredients that why do birds sit on power lines uh, so they can recharge because they're government drones right ah. um mm-hmm. and so there, yeah um, I would have tweaked it um, to make it more persuasive. I would say only certain birds are are robots. So, yeah, and then you can go into the spots and the feathers and create elaborate conspiracies about you know what they look, and so it becomes even more difficult to falsify um, some of these theories. So so anyway, those are the the conspiracies, which are now part and parcel of of, of any good uh, disinformation sort of campaign. Um, and uh, I think I think we. Uh, Oh trolling trolling is the last yeah. one which hmm. um you know is is obviously huge during election campaigns uh it's it's all about baiting people into response it, it could be with automated accounts um to try to amplify divisive debates it could be um ai generated uh, where you 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 generate narratives by an ai and then target uh, accounts uh, it could be humans you know used to be humans in troll farms and we interviewed um some people who work in troll farms to to try to uh, you know, bait social media users into into a response and and talking oh. about divisive uh, issues. Uh, so um, you know, <laughs> uh, troll, uh, troll, and divide. And so it, it is um, it's increasing over time. Troll trolling activities. So people have, have tried to track this, and um, so that's it's become a, a more influential uh, technique. Um, so yeah, so those are the six degrees of manipulation, and then there's there's many many more. You know, things like scapegoating or false dilemmas and. Uh, other logical fallacies that are that are often used, um, and again, I would I would go as far as saying y- you don't really need to know much about the world to, to detect some of these tactics. Um, so the false dilemma is is this uh, extremist tactic that political gurus often use, uh, and they try to present people with two options while in fact there's more, right? So they take away all the nuance, and it sounds really persuasive sometimes. And so like oh you know you're uh, we have to fix the homelessness problem in San Francisco before we can think about immigrants. Or uh, either you join ISIS or you're not a good Muslim. Um, And so the the idea here is that to falsely present people with this juxtaposition of two choices, well, in fact, there's many more. And so this taking out all the nuance creates extremism. And that's what this technique is all about. Um, And the interesting thing for me is that you don't need to know about the content of a claim. You just need to know the structure of this fallacy. Uh, and so in our interventions, we we expose people to, uh, you know, to, to a clip from Star Wars, for example. Uh, are you guys Star Wars fans or not? Not really. He, yeah, he I, I love Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, we, we do Revenge of the Sith. Um, and so we have Anakin Skywalker. If people don't want Star Wars, he becomes, spoiler alert, he becomes Darth Vader. Um, and uh, Obi-Wan um, and, um, you know, Anakin sort of says, or either you're with me or you're my enemy. Uh, and then Obi Wan replies and says, "Only Sith deals in absolutes." Um, and so the idea here really is that that's the that's the only thing you need to know. Uh, people who are really clever, are like, "Only Sith deals in absolutes." Isn't that an absolute statement in itself? And so I guess you it gets you thinking. But the point is that um, right, it's not just either you're with me or you're my enemy. Um, if you compare that to some of the stimuli we used to test people, which was a tweet, uh, an actual tweet from the NRA, which during the shootings said, "Either." Uh, you're pro AR-15 rifles or you're against the Second Amendment. That's mm. you're either with me or you're my enemy. It's the exact same thing, uh, but it's used in a specific sort of context. And again, you don't need to know about guns to, to understand the structure of a false dilemma. And so that's what this whole approach is really about.
0: Which is fascinating, by the way, right? Because so many people do not know about these tools to identify, oh, I'm I'm being duped right now, or rather the structure of this or that statement is actually you know, coaxing me into buying into a particular perspective or polarizing me from my neighbor, let's say, right? Which is interesting, right? I mean, uh, I could imagine if I did not know uh, about any of this, right? Um, I could just be on my phone, maybe scrolling Instagram, Facebook, get some sort of uh, maybe a post uh, like, oh, uh, not, uh, uh, people with higher IQs tend to be uh, liberal, or something like that. I don't know. I'm just making it up. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, ah, okay, well, I have some liberal views. Uh, you know what? Uh, and I, I must be smart and, and whatever. It might push me in that direction. Or um, yeah. Republicans are against uh, uh, abortion. Therefore, you know, oh, if, if you support that, then, you know, Republicans are bad. And anyone who's a Republican, you know, I can't deal with or I'll have an issue with. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think you're talking about tribalism, right? So, yeah, and it's, I just want to add to that. So, and, you know, when you're thinking about um conspiracy, so I, I, we both come technically from the Soviet Union. So for the people like in our, well, okay, whatever you were, were you born here? I was born here. Okay, never, whatever. Our families are from the Soviet I was born in uh, Ukraine. So, uh, so point is to say that like, so for a lot of the people in our circles who are conspiracy theorists, um, uh, so again, I'm going to go back to Shermer's model, because in this case, I think it really does apply. So what they would say is that, well, but you don't understand if you lived in Soviet Russia, you would see this stuff every every day. so right there's propaganda everywhere uh the government is pretty nefarious uh it's pretty tyrannical it's you know despotic Etc and the idea is you actually can trust most people and most people are sort of tools of the government some are official tools of the government somewhere some are unwitting fools you know so when they tell you that yeah of course like why wouldn't there be a conspiracy sort of more globally so the way they would fa- frame it is they would say well look do you really think that this one government in the entire world is able to do this on its own or do you think that it's more likely that there's sort of a cabal of governments and secret shadow governments working together, propping them. So for them, they would say, like, the reason, like, okay, here's an example, right? Do you really think that the U.S., with all its power, would have allowed the Soviet Union to do something like that if they weren't somehow in cahoots with it? So the idea was like the whole Cold War nonsense, uh, maybe even the World Mm. Wars, if you're going even deeper. It was all kind of an orchestrated play. So the way they would frame it is that based on my understanding of the way government works, which is not untrue, because that's what they grew up with, uh, based on my understanding of how the government works, it doesn't really, it's not much of a logical leap to say this is how all of the governments in the world work. And this, it's not much of a logical leap to say, okay, now here's this one tyrannical government that's working with these other, a little bit more insidious ones, a little insidiously more tyrannical ones. And uh, what they're doing is sort of they're plotting this one world government. So it's kind of interesting. And you know, you mentioned before how conspiracies seem to be interlocked, and I also find that too, is that you're finding that it's like, it's not, and so, again, some conspiracies are true, right? So you'll have the conspiracies of, let's say, Soviet, of the Soviet Union, and they're somehow interlocked with the conspiracies of the United States. Some are true, right? You look at Noam Chomsky, I mean, he's exposed a lot of this over the years and they kind of make them work together. And uh, well, so I actually want to ask you a question, Sandra. So there was actually, so something you said, um, I kind of disagree with, but I do want to get your take on it. So you said that for conspiracy theories, and I think there's a lot of truth to this, that there's a search for simple answers. So what's so interesting is that I actually find the opposite to be true. And here's why I say that. So what I often see in conspiracies is that uh, in conspiracy, theories, right? They actually hate Occam's razor. So when you'll say something to them like, well, okay, but Occam's razor, right? Can't we just say that 9-11 was caused by a bunch of, let's say, you know, terrorists who, you know, had a bunch of box cutters and, you know, they just, it was a few errors, right? A few errors by different types of people. Uh, They would say, no, 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 that's way too simplistic. They would say it's actually more coordinated than that. People are not that stupid. So it's like, on the one hand, they might kind of discredit like the sheeple or whatever. But on the other hand, they will say, but no, the people in power are brilliant. So if you try to tell them again, you know, you would use Occam's razor and You'd say, "Oh, people are kind of foolish. They make dumb decisions, et cetera. They would say, "No, no, that can't be the truth." And then they point to this vast network of conspiracies, and it's all very interlinked, and it's all very complicated. So, I, I mean, what do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe I should I should clarify this a bit because I, I do agree with you. I think um, sometimes, maybe when when uh, when when we say this, I think what we mean is that the the conspiracy theories themselves can get really complicated. Uh, in terms of how they construct the um, the the narrative and all of the links and the complex webs that they draw between the connections and people, but what's simple is the reasons for why people uh, want to believe them. Um, and so uh, you know the idea is that it's much simpler to say that global warming is a hoax than to accept the the fact that it's going to complicate you know, our lives and and the lives of other people in the future in in, in many ways. It's much easier to think that COVID isn't harmful and isn't real than to try to deal with all the behavioral uh, and policy changes that uh, that are necessary. It's much easier Mm -hmm. um, to sort of think that uh, the government is hiding aliens than to ponder over the complicated ideas that Maybe they are out there, but we've never seen them. How is that possible? And you have to go into all of these scientific theories, right? So the idea is usually that the conspiracy theories feed into the, these sort of simple needs that people have to, to, to want to get um, an answer uh, for something that's actually quite complex and, and uncertain, right? Global warming, the science is complex. COVID, the science is complex. Uh, aliens, actually, the, the science is, is quite complex. Um, And so it's much simpler just to believe um, that it's all not true. Um, So I think that's what we mean by saying that the the motives are sometimes simple. uh, But I agree that the theories themselves can get quite elaborate. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, maybe the distinction here is simple, but not easy, or easy, but not simple, where it's like, uh, for, I mean, I think there's kind of complexity on both sides. But I think what you're saying is in terms of motivated reasoning, it's it's much easier for a person to believe, like, let's say, I don't know, uh, like, let's say the government or whatever is hiding the fact that there's an afterlife or something. And we've always known that they are these sort of telekinetic people or whatever. And like, so they're hiding all of this technology from us, or <laughs> whatever it is, whatever you'd call psychic ability from us, uh, rather than to believe that, yeah, you know, maybe there is no
0: afterlife and maybe we're kind of here all on our own. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think
1: easier. Go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, I'm sorry. No, just the, the complex reality. I mean, what may be the actual reality, which is something harder to deal with, right? Where, uh, for example, Oh, uh, there are no people with psychic abilities or something like that. that, that for instance, like on one level um, it sounds like on the surface, I could see how you might say, no, that's a very clear cut answer. Mm-hmm. There are no people with psychic abilities, but then uh, I suppose, uh, there, there's something. You know what? Scratch the thought. It's an incomplete thought. I, I'll I'll stop there. I, I was just th- thinking that the the actual what I guess what I'm trying to verbalize here is that the um the reality what you have to sort of um contemplate in order to integrate uh what is actually true versus using sort of existing information in in your sort of belief set in order to rationalize an understanding or a coherent explanation of what is going on it's harder to accept something unfamiliar versus something that is familiar like at least at least then um you're still using uh, your own resources to come up with an answer as to you know how does this make sense mm-hmm. i got I you yeah on, yeah, I think,
1: yeah no no i think that makes sense and i like the term you know easier uh the the these things are easier to accept than reality, which is often complex and uncertain. Um, so I, I think that makes sense. Um, perhaps simpler in the sense that um, you know. I think I think sometimes there's this notion that uh, okay, let's believe that some powerful people are plotting in secret to cause uh, harm. That's a simple explanation uh, because the you know the other the other narrative is that there's actually some some complex signs that you would you you would need to get into to to sort of you know. Uh, deal with uh, with it or, you know, the, the complex distributed consequences of, of global warming or the pandemic or any of these theories, uh, right? So the, the simpler answer is that there's somebody plotting in secret uh, because it's always the same. It, it has a simple structure to it. Uh, um, and that's, I think, sometimes, well, well it's easier to accept, um, but sometimes people also say that's the, that's the simpler narrative. Um, but I can see the point that, you know, once you go beyond the powerful people plotting behind the scenes. There's often a complex web of relations and stories uh, that that are actually quite you know quite intricate and a lot of conspiracy theorists love referring to their own research and they spend hours on the internet connecting the dots and so I fully I fully agree that you know they turn it into a, into a complex web but I, I perhaps the the premise is simple uh, That's sometimes I think what 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 we mean that it's always the same sort of premise you already know the answer there's people plotting in secret doing something nefarious and. That's what makes it unscientific, because, you know, with the scientific theory, you don't assume that there's evil people out there plotting. That's one of the possibilities. But there's many other non-conspiratorial explanations. Right. The, the simpler version sense. of this is, is just to, to always assume it's the, the same sort of sort of plot. Um, and it's interesting when you point this out to people, um, especially when I talk to the conspiracy theorists. And then they they always come back with this answer that, yes, but some conspiracies have really happened. Uh, uh, right, and some conspiracies are real. Um, and I think for me, the differentiator is, and and sometimes there's a lot of confusion about this. And this is also, I'm not sure if Michael Sherman and I agree on on this aspect. I, my sense, and and some of my collaborators is that when you look at real conspiracy theories, the process by which those are discovered are actually very different from false conspiracy theories. And so, oh, it's very
2: interesting. The, oh, can you tell? Yeah, yeah the can, markers can you, are. Yeah, yeah, on. the markers
1: are not the same. Um, and so that's that's kind of what we've been uh, getting into uh, this idea of okay what 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 is happening here and so and so the the idea that oh but some conspiracies are true is well um, Watergate you know let's take Watergate as an example people always come up with, with Watergate and it's sort of like uh, yeah that was that was that was true um, however you know that was uncovered by through what we call you know normal cognition uh, which is normal regular people. Uh, doing their job. Um, there were people in the mainstream media, investigative journalists, who got some intel, investigated it, uncovered that there was a conspiracy. Um, these weren't people in their basement making complex webs of pedophile-ring conspiracies, uh, right, thinking that they're doing their own research and uncovering a vast web of uh, of deception. Um, these were regular people doing their job, stumbling uh, upon some evidence and then investigating it further which is what they do if you look at some of the other conspiracies through our history it's wait usually... then,
2: I, I just want to interrupt because i really want to i want to quickly ask you do you know that you pretty much just quoted michael Sharmer?
1: oh is that is, yeah, that's is that right literally in
2: this, that's literally in this book almost word for word yeah he would agree with you 100 i love that
1: i love that. Yeah. <laughs> for, some, for some reason i always think we we, we um we disagree on this because no. uh, um, you, you know, I always get this, and, and I don't really know him though. well. I should I should say maybe I should I should actually read his book before. Yeah, I, you would love it. You before, would really love before it before I spread yeah. more fake news. Uh, <laughs> Seriously, because the, yeah, yeah, because he's always um um you know about this sort of oh, but you know we, we have to investigate uh, the uh the the you know the the facts, and it's sort of a, well, yeah that that's true, but but the thing is there there are people out there doing this for a living. Fact checkers, journalists, uh, uh, the police, right? So it's usually through some very mundane, normal process that real conspiracies are uncovered, and the ones that people that are popular on the internet are always floated uh, with what we call this this sort of conspiratorial cognition. So not routine or normal cognition, but conspiratorial cognition, which have these ingredients like, oh, you know, there's it's filled with distrust and paranoia and, and there are some, uh, uh, you know, persecuted victim and somebody in, in power and, uh, reinterpreting random patterns. And it becomes this sort of web of, uh, of, of, of intricate relations and, you know, belief in one conspiracy just serves as evidence that there's other conspiracies. And then before you know it, you're in the new world order type of stuff. Um, and all of that sort of what we call conspiracy cognition or the conspiratorial worldview, Right uh, is is very likely uh, to be false uh, uh, because we know from from mathematical models and uh, people like David Grimes have done the math on that that if 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 NASA would be faking the moon landing the sheer amount of people required to to keep that secret you would you would almost have imminent failure uh, of of that type of conspiracy right and so he's actually calculated how many people are in the building um, how you know how and he did this for many popular conspiracy theories um, and it just you know it's just the case that. The, the psychological process by which people arrive at these popular conspiracy theories are just filled with irrationality and paranoia and distrust that are very predictable. They always have the same narrative, like the 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 dead person on an island somewhere. Whereas the real conspiracies are usually uncovered uh, by regular people fact checking or journalists or uh, you know investigators, um, doctors. Often, you know, I always say, I mean, there there are ton, there's tons of of conspiracies, you know, conspiracy to commit fraud going on in the financial industry, uh, in the medical uh, uh, field. Um, it's not the case that that this is not uncovered. I mean, there's people whose literally whose job it is to investigate these type of things, and people do uncover pyramid schemes and financial conspiracy to commit fraud or defraud the United States. Um, and um, there's procedures in place that uh, lead people to discover these things. Not always, but you know, most of the time. Um, or at least some of the time, um, and that process is very different from the process by which people arrive at conspiratorial beliefs. Those tend to be scientifically oriented investigations that use, you know, uh, hypotheses and evidence gathering, open mindedness, uh, right, and and so on. And so that's why why I'm always out of hand kind of skeptical of of these more popular sort of conspiracy theories that uh, a lot of people. Seem to seem to endorse uh, because if there was a real conspiracy going on, um, right, there would be some kind of investigation, um, or, or scientists would be looking into it, um, and then it wouldn't be a conspiracy theory anymore because we, we'd have evidence. Um, and again, sometimes you don't know all of the facts, right? Uh, take Epstein. Um, a lot of people are skeptical uh, about this, um, and um, this is really interesting. you guys know Paul Bloom? He's a he's a yeah. A well-known uh, psychologist who who told me on Twitter, he said, "Yeah, but doesn't it make sense for people to have a prior that um, assumes that, you know, maybe we should we should all be a little." I don't want to misquote him. I think so. So what he said was, we should all recalibrate our priors. Be more likely to assume that some conspiracy is happening in the world because aren't conspiracies happening all the time? And so you know, Epstein was his main sort of example. Like, okay, but we we don't you know, we don't know what happened, right? And so, and I think that's the that's the key point, though. It's it's that it's true that. I don't know everything about 9 11 i don't know everything about epstein right uh people come to me with all sorts of conspiracies and i'm like well you know we don't we don't we don't know i mean it's a remote possibility the lab yeah. leak right that's going yeah. on and I on don't, I,
2: I don't even get how the epstein thing would be a conspiracy but
1: well they're like why would he kill it you know and the, the whole thing was like all oh, the camera just happened to not oh, work okay. uh right right and uh and why would he you know kill there were powerful people he knew powerful people that wanted to silence him and so you know, it, it's it's because um, he was going to spill the beans or something like that. Um, okay. And so, you know, it, it, it that's an example. But also um, the bioweapon lab leak sort of thing. I think people get really confused about sure, it can be accidents in a lab. Nobody's saying that there's never been any accidents, but that there's intentionally people plotting to create a bioweapon in a military lab and so on. That's that's an elaborate conspiracy theory for which there is you know very little to know to know, probably no evidence. Um, and so that's kind of the the difference. And I think the mistake that people make across the board, um, especially when they accuse me of being the the master puppet of of uh, you know some elaborate conspiracy that involves me, um, is that I I don't know all of the facts about all of these conspiracies. But the antidote for me is is what I what we call actively open minded thinking, right? Um, I don't start out assuming that it's some evil person plotting behind the scenes. As you said, you know, if you know anything about government or international organizations, most of the time, this sort of, you know, bureaucracy that happens at lower levels, it's plenty of incompetence and accidents and Mm -hmm. and not a whole lot of planning uh, and and intentional, right. It's very chaotic. Also, you know, you look at, you look at the evidence and and you update your beliefs. uh, If you find evidence that runs contrary to, conspiratorial beliefs but that's not what people who believe in conspiracies tend to do they tend to reject the evidence and up their 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 conspiratorial um, sort of reasoning Um, and so being actively open-minded which means having multiple hypotheses entertaining multiple forms of evidence placing probabilities you know on different types of hypotheses and you know being okay with the fact that you don't know everything but that the weight of evidence is pointing in one direction and you leave open some other hypotheses but you know it's unlikely to be uh, to be to be highly credible, and it's more likely that some other explanation is going to be true. Um, I think that's really the antidote, because conspiracy theories are all about being fixed in your mindset, being 100% sure that it's these evil people, you know, plotting and working together. Um, and and you just want to see the evidence for that. And I think that's inherently unscientific in how that works. And yeah, you know, I, I have family members who are deep into into the you know, truth or movement stuff. And and that's usually how I try to have that conversation is, is, uh, is look, you know, we don't, we don't start out by assuming that it's a conspiracy because that's not scientific. And then they'll often say, oh, but isn't science itself kind of a religion? Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, isn't science like a big conspiracy with all the fraud and so on? Um, and it's sort of like, well, you know, regardless of what you think uh, of that, and, and, you know, sometimes fraud does happen, uh, science is kind of a self-correcting enterprise. We uncovered a fraud right? Through the scientific process. Uh, and that's, that's why it's such a useful process to have to be open-minded and to gather evidence and, and to not jump to conclusions about what's, you know, and so on. And, and, um, you know, I think sometimes that resonates, uh, for, for a little bit, uh, until they sort of go back into the, you know, on the internet and, uh, and, (laughs) and, and, and do their own research again, uh, and so on. But, (laughs) but, but, you know, um, again, it's not to say that often it sounds kind of, um, you know, I, I don't want that to sound paternalistic because I, I do think that it's important for people to to do research um, and not just rely on on what experts uh, uh, say but you know obviously we can't research everything about about what's going on in the world all the time so we need to rely on experts to synthesize the evidence uh, a little bit. but um, you know doing your own research means being open-minded and and not you know not jumping, jumping to conclusions. And I think that's what conspiracies are are all about, sort of jumping to the conclusions.
0: Yep. Now, I'm just curious, how do you think uh, societally, uh, could we maybe combat the spread of misinformation? Because I, I recall from your book, there's this, um, I believe you were citing a study where during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, the rate at which misinformation was spread was I think, uh, six times faster than uh, any any true claims uh, regarding COVID-19. And this is very hard to deal with. Uh, I'll just, sorry, I'm going to tag that with a little bit because i also respecting the time, of course, as well. Also, sure. with the with, uh, echo chambers, right? Essentially, like on, on social media websites, uh, the algorithm is set up in such a way where it uh, maximizes for Uh, uh, max time on site by uh, feeding you things that you already like and giving you more of that Um, so uh, the coupling of misinformation spread and sort of these algorithms that allow also for uh, at least continued that reinforce and uh, sort of push uh, further polarization what do you think is something that could be done to sort of combat that yeah good
1: question yeah it is it is a good question um you know that's why i think i place a lot of effort and uh resources into this preemptive metaphor in in the book because you know it is and this is kind of an idea for sometimes people ask me about how can you de-radicalize your your cranky uncle or somebody who's who's down the rabbit hole in some echo chamber and you know as 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 many in the medical field would probably agree um Prevention is much more effective than cure in this in this context, um, and that's why I focus a lot on this principle of of psychological inoculation, uh, which is all about pre- you know preemptively building resilience uh, to some of the factors that lead to the spread of of misinformation. Uh, you know, sometimes it's asymptomatic, right? People spread misinformation without without knowing that something is false. Sometimes people are stuck in an echo chamber, and you know the information they receive is. Uh, confirming their pre-existing beliefs, but people are not really thinking about it that way. Um, right And so how can you preemptively prepare people um, for these type of scenarios? and that's what this principle of pre-bunking or inoculation is uh, is all about. We use pre-bunking for people who are less comfortable with the with the vaccination analogy. Um, <laughs> but but really it, it inoculation is um, is really about this idea that you actually preemptively, um, inject people with a weakened dose of the virus, uh, and it so it follows the medical analogy exactly. Really, that you know, just as you inject your body with a weakened, or inactivated strain of a virus to try to predict, uh, to try to trigger the production of, of antibodies to help confer resistance against future infection, turns out you can do the same with the mind uh, mm. by preemptively exposing people to weakened doses of of falsehoods or the techniques that are used to produce falsehoods. And by refuting them in advance or deconstructing their fallacies, uh, this is the important part, right? You just you, you don't want to just expose people to weakened doses of disinformation. You actually want to deconstruct it as well in advance. Uh, people can build up mental or cognitive resistance and become more immune, relatively more immune, uh, to, to disinformation in the future. And just as the body needs lots of examples of uh, a potential you know invading pathogen to understand which proteins are, you know, healthy and part of the, uh, the good cells and which are the invaders, um, it kind of works the same with the mind. Your mind needs a lot of um, examples, micro doses of what deception or manipulation looks like in order to mount uh, an effective mental immune response. Um, and that's really what uh, our research is, is, is all about. And uh, to give you an example of the, the reasoning behind inoculation, um, it's really that you know, people say, "Okay, is it different from education or critical thinking?" And sort of, well, you can think of it, you can think of it as being part of it, but it's much more specific. It's all about, you know, showing facts. And education are good, but they're they're not going to help you necessarily uh, with a specific attack uh, on your belief system or on your knowledge or on your uh, um, general sort of worldview. Um, so a lot of the time, you know, when somebody shoots polarizing content on uh, onto you, you don't have a, a immediate sort of uh, sort of defense or you know, when it comes to some of these techniques if you don't know how to how to how to spot them. Um an example of that is um is something that's often used, for example, in the, in anti-vaccination the, the space. Um, let me give you an example. Um, this is very persuasive because most people have never heard of this and and are are easily duped by it, which is the idea that, we can't trust childhood vaccines because most childhood vaccines are not tested using placebo-controlled trials, which meaning that there is no control group who receives a placebo so that we don't have baseline safety data on the vaccines. And so for that reason, the medical establishment has lied to you and you can't trust uh, uh, vaccines. Now, the real story is that actually um, they have done that in the past uh, and then found out later through you know, setting ethical guidelines that when there's a deadly disease and you know you have a vaccine that works, it's unethical not to give uh, children the vaccine and put them in a control group, right? Uh, but, but without getting into the facts about this whole sort of thing, the, the way you would deconstruct this in an inoculation sort of sense is to provide a weakened dose to prepare people for the for the you know to prepare the mental defenses that people might need to deal with these kinds of arguments, which is kind of to say, well, you know, Leon, if I were to um, put you in my experiment, we're going to test a new parachute. I'm going to give you this really fancy new parachute that uh, is going to be real protective. Uh, um, and then, um, you know, for your for your um, for your buddy, um, he's going to get the placebo parachute this time, <laughs> uh, right? So, so that that's not a real parachute, uh, <laughs> right? And so, and so the idea is that we don't need the placebo-controlled uh, parachute in order to understand that uh, um, you're going to die if you don't get the, the, the parachute or likely to be severely um, injured, right? We know that parachutes work from prior experience and data, and it's the same for vaccines. Those trials were done in the past, uh, and we do have data generally on this. And so for the the latest vaccines, they use other active vaccines or other Control groups, right? But it, it uses the structure, kind of like the Star Wars example I gave earlier, in a, in a weakened sort of way uh, to help people um, uh, prepare. Um, I'll give you one last example. I just gave this this talk in a room of two hundred disinformation researchers. Um, I ask people to be honest with themselves, um, and and tell me if they're if they're confronted with a, you know, uh, let, let's say a clever flat earther um, who's who's throwing facts at them about why, you know, why the earth is flat and so on, if they if they have the mental defenses in place to counter argue and explain scientifically why the earth is round uh, and not flat. Turns out that out of the 200 people, only two raised their hand uh, in terms of being able to explain scientifically why the earth is round uh, and not flat. Uh, And so I think the power is that most people don't have the mental defenses in place to deal with these types of attacks. um and so yeah sure you know you could and that's kind of how we started you can vaccinate people um uh, with specific you know types of vaccines that are synthesized out of a specific myth so for example we could arm people with the reasons for why the earth is flat and not uh that was a, that was a test right uh, why the earth is round and and not flat um right and and they're going to be more immune. The problem that you have is then that's going to work for flat Earth, but not for the new variant and the new strain, and so on. And so we started branching out and doing this at what we call a technique-based sort of level. And that's where the the six degrees of manipulation came in. That moving away from specific issues, and yeah, sure, vaccinating people against specific falsehoods using a weekend sort of sort of dose kind of works. Uh, but if you want to have broader spectrum immunity to a whole range of these types of uh, Narratives, you're gonna to have to focus more on the on the underlying sort of narratives and tropes and tactics. And an example of that would be um the sort of vaccines going to change your DNA. Um and again, I tell people, um, and it's funny because you know, in the book, when you mentioned I I said I don't want to tell people what to believe, and uh and I try to keep it non-political. And then of course you have the people who say, uh, you know, some some uh some customers who uh who say like, oh, you know, but obviously van der endorses mainstream positions about vaccines and climate in the book. And so he's biased uh, and so on. Um, and, and, and sort of the, the, the thing is actually what I'm trying to say is that regardless of what you think about the vaccine, um, the sort of change, the vaccine is going to change your DNA. That's, that's not a new, that's not a new line of argumentation. I mean, that's a trope that's been used since the start of, the development of vaccines in the 1800s, where you know Edward Jenner came up with the smallpox uh, vaccine, and he used the, the cowpox vaccine for that. And there were paintings, literally from that area, paintings where humans with cows sprouting out of their mouths, and wow. this whole narrative that yeah, that you're going to turn into a human cow hybrid if you get the vaccine. Um, <laughs> and so, and so you know that exact argument has been recycled for hundreds of years. Uh, it's just that somehow we forget. Uh, and the same type of, uh, you know, the same type of trope comes up again and again. Um, and it's, you yeah, it has a new jacket and a slightly new application. Um, and people sort of think like, oh, yeah, it's going to change your DNA and so on. But regardless of what you want to believe about the vaccines, you should know that this is a repeated trope. Uh, and when you know that, I think people are empowered to then make up their, their own mind about what they want to believe. But um, I think that's, you know, that's important for uh, for the technique level um sort of inoculation and then you have people criticize that and say oh yeah but you're not changing people's beliefs this way it's just it's more indirect and I think you know when it comes to people who have a lot of resistance it's better to be indirect because you know any attempt to change their beliefs is going to be seen as hostile and biased yeah um, and so and so that's why I think you know operating at this more indirect level of saying look we're just going to empower people to spot these manipulative tactics wherever they may come from um is is going to be a more feasible bipartisan solution to the problem of, of, of disinformation spread.
2: Oh, and I have to add this final part then, since you mentioned this. So I take this from Danny Kahneman and I use this in my psychotherapy session. So I'm a therapist. Uh, And then so what he would say, so CBT a lot of times works with changing beliefs, challenging beliefs, et cetera. And so, but Kahneman would say, look, a lot of times what people want is they want to get away from tension. So when you're sort of pushing things onto them, like even let's say facts or truth or whatever, right, they're going to want to resist that because it's going to cause a lot of tension. So what you're doing is now you're looking for the anxiety. You're looking at what's actually preventing them from doing things that are good for them. So when you talk to patients a lot of times, which you're actually focusing on less so the beliefs, I'm not saying that doesn't happen, it does, but more so about what are called emotional payoffs, like, okay, you know, if you're going to be irrational, or if you're going to be delusional, I think you're, yeah, this is already once we've kind of come to the conclusion, at the very least that, uh, that the person is being irrational, then I would say, like, why, what would be the emotional benefit? Like, why would you need to continue to be irrational? And then the person say, well, I'm afraid, right? I'm afraid to give up this belief or this set of beliefs or whatever, right? And now you're thinking, okay, wow, so now we were seeing it, right? So now you're saying that there's this emotional payoff. Now let's deal with the payoff. Right. can it be possible that maybe you can actually tolerate that some of that anxiety right can it be possible that some of the catastrophic predictions that you're gonna have or not or that you're having are not actually going to come true so if you're thinking about somebody who's saying uh, so I'll just give a quick example of like when I was a conspiracy theorist i mentioned this on our last podcast with melody so my whole thing was like okay where do I do where do I go and what do I do when I give these up right so I give up the set of beliefs I have a whole group of people that's pretty much around them I'm in a network of people who are virtually conspiracy theorists where do I go right so now the emotional payoff is you know twofold Number one, I feel good about myself because I feel special. Number two, I have a community. What happens when I lose all of that? So, like in psychotherapy, we would pretty much say, okay, let's try to find a way around that. So, if you're saying that you need to be irrational and it's more practical for you to be so, are there other alternatives? And can you actually tolerate some of the anxiety that comes with actually believing facts? So, I don't know. I just feel like that's maybe another way to go, especially with people who are uh, kind of a little bit more paranoid um, and that they're worried. Uh, again, so, you know, they're worried that if I give up these beliefs, you know, terrible things are going to happen to me, uh, et cetera. And then also, so I would say for the people who are afraid of randomness, that's another thing too. Uh again, not getting into this too deeply. So, but for people who are afraid of randomness, I think you would have to actually challenge that, not challenge it, but kind of work with it or address that fear. Because if on the one hand they're saying, well, it makes much more sense to me that there's a sort of global cabal working, you know, against us, uh keeping me down or whatever, right? Then you would have to work with a taking responsibility. Why is that so scary? Obviously. Uh B, and then also the randomness of the world. So for a lot of people, and I've dealt this with my own family, like uh people in my family have said things like well if there aren't people manipulating us then what are you saying that all of this is just random like it's such a terrifying thought so i think addressing that would be helpful too uh okay so go ahead Sandra. just go ahead respond please
1: yeah yeah no, no absolutely i was just thinking as you were you were explaining this um i often you know people often ask about oh how, how do i talk to you know a family member who's, who's deep in the QAnon or or conspiracy theories of some sort and it's sort of like well um, you know, this approach is really for other people at the table. So, you know, when you're at your family gatherings and your conspiracy uncle is is, is spouting off the narratives, uh, it's really to pre-bunk and inoculate everyone else uh, so that they don't become, quote, unquote, infected with the same ideas. Because um, conspiracy theories are really contagious. And we've done some, some research on that, that. They they seem they seem they're really psychologically attractive because they fulfill all of these important needs as you mentioned you you covered all of them in your uh, in in what you just said you know the the search for knowledge and to not be part of the sheeple to have social relations and social affirmation and validation uh, and to reduce anxiety about about the future which uh, you know is existential sort of uh, sort of motives and so um, um, and so. You know, part of it, part of it for me is uh, um, is really about the idea that de-radicalizing someone um, out of a conspiracy theory uh, is is much more difficult uh, than uh, to, to try to prebunk or inoculate. But there is this inter- interesting spectrum where um, you have what we call therapeutic inoculation, which is people who are on the fence uh, and and sort of can still be inoculated. Uh, by boosting their immune response uh, when they're thinking about it. But my question to you is going to be, um, since you mentioned that you're, you're a, a psychotherapist, um, um, some of those people ask me if inoculation is similar to exposure therapy. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the way that I think about this is, or the way that I've been thinking about this, to me, somebody with, when you do exposure therapy, you know, somebody already has the phobia in that case which is kind of akin to already having the, the the misinformation virus um and so it's more like really like uh like almost like de-radicalization or the- therapeutic inoculation where you're kind of working like with somebody who's you know on the fence or or somebody who's already sort of deep down the, the rabbit hole um i guess you do do micro exposures you you build up the 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 resistance but um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how how that works. Uh, but the inoculation would would have to be the the weakened dose in order for it to fit. But the with the framework, but you don't incrementally increase the weakened dose in the, yeah. in the inoculation.
2: I, I actually, I wouldn't say that that's a pretty good analogy, just because with exposure therapy, I mean, the person is already, I'm going to just use the term, I'm not saying it's exactly apt, but it's is already diseased. So for, for the person going through exposure therapy, I mean, they're already coming in with some sort of severe phobia. So I would argue it's not the same thing as inoculation, because technically, it would right. be pretty unethical uh, to make a person afraid of something even then actually, well, I mean, I guess parents would do that with children where they would just expose them to you know things little by little, and you know just to kind of uh, negate some of the fears. But I wouldn't say that's exposure therapy. I would say exposure, yes, that's a good concept here, but not exposure therapy because exposure therapy implies a severe phobia to begin with.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, right, and then you need uh, you know much more intensive sort of therapy, and that's that's to me also this this idea of people who are already diehard believers in, in conspiracy yeah. theories, and 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 maybe that's going to be a, a next book that I want to get into because. As you mentioned earlier, I think that the remedy for that is much more structural. You need to give people uh, alternative social relationships, an alternative community to, to offer, right? You need to take things slow and not push people too hard. It, it's going to take much more time. Um, and so there's all of these structural factors that you, it's almost like getting people out of a cult in some way, right? Or it's, religion. You need, Absolutely. Or religion, yeah. You need all of these support systems in place, and, uh, and that's just a much more difficult lift. Um, and that's why I stress prevention so much when it comes to this stuff. Uh, but yeah, when when somebody's, I totally agree that when somebody's already down the rabbit hole, you need you need these other types of solutions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, wow, man, this was such a phenomenal episode. I wish we had more time, actually. Hey. All right, Alan. So, uh, final questions for Sandra before we wrap up. So, before I
0: ask this final question, I just want to say: so, I listened to the audio version of the book. <laughs> I love that you actually narrate it. Not a lot of <laughs> authors do the narrating. Yeah, yeah. Narrating it yeah, was they- it was
1: uh it was difficult uh um to do this i mean i was in a studio for for um uh for 6 days my voice was totally gone you know the, the amount of times that you mess up and and have to i got so much sympathy for people who do animation for a living or voiceovers. i mean it's such hard work um it was it, it was a cool opportunity cuz there's a studio here in cambridge where uh um apparently pink floyd uh recorder and so there were, there were a lot of cool things going on uh that, that were distracting me from um from the the owner's work that i had to do to to, to record this uh but you know i told him to get morgan freeman uh but yeah he, he was <laughs> he, 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 he wasn't available the voice of god um and yeah. so uh, yeah so you you end, you ended up with me so hopefully by the end it's still it still sounded, no, it was uh,
0: great. It was great. It was also on top of just being very informative. It was also
1: uh, there
0: were times where I found it very funny. Actually, I, I found myself laughing while listening as well. Oh, so it's like very entertaining and informative at the same time, which is which is great. But but yes, abso- absolutely. And uh, what I wanted to actually ask is, uh, if we wanted to uh, follow you and of course, follow your work, uh, where, where can we do? That?
2: And the Mental Immunity Project, too
1: yeah yeah so i'm you know part of the uh the, the mental immunity project uh um which is on all uh, sort of social channels uh if people want to know more about the the book or the work uh we can go to sander or foolproofbook.com um also inoculation.science which is a website that houses all of our resources for free the games the videos uh handbooks uh and In, that's inoculation.science. dot science, and uh, yeah, I'm on most social channels. LinkedIn um, at Sander underscore vd Linden for for Twitter. I'm experimenting with uh, TikTok and Instagram at Professor Sander Vander Linden, but I'm I'm not I'm not sure uh, how much uh you know uh, how how much I can uh I can I can do on uh, on TikTok and uh and Instagram, but I'm trying to trying to stay hip absolutely awesome and then
2: <laughs> and then obviously my last recommendation is i really really implore you to check out michael Shermer's conspiracy uh okay so sander thank I you will. So mu- all right you'll i promise you you'll love it and you're going to be like oh my god i agree with almost all of this uh okay so sander thank you so much for coming on man this was an epic
1: show thank you so much my pleasure guys thanks for having me
2: absolutely thank we'll you. talk to you soon man have a good night
1: you too all
0: right so Everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, on Twitter. We're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit hit the the bell bell on on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.